Today, I'm excited to welcome my friend, the author Lauren Smith Brody, to the podcast. She's been closely covering the way pandemic life has reset so many norms around parenting and caregiving. What she said in this episode helped me as a mom and as a single mom make sense of the chaos I've been experiencing. Let's take a listen. Right here we go. Well, I am so delighted to welcome my friend and colleague Lauren Smith Brody to the podcast. Lauren is the founder of the Fifth Trimester Movement and the author of The Fifth Trimester: The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby. It was a simultaneous number one bestseller in the Amazon categories of motherhood, women, and business, and cultural anthropology. Lauren's work has been featured on Good Morning America, CNN.com, Forbes, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review. Wow, it goes on and on. And one of the most interesting things about Lauren to me is that she had a 16-year career in magazine publishing. And she was most recently the longtime executive editor of Glamour Magazine at Condé Nast, where she produced the Women of the Year Awards, which I would love to hear more about someday. And she honored luminaries like Dr. Maya Angelou and Hillary Clinton. Lauren is both an executive level manager and a content expert. And while she was at Glamour, she led colleagues and 12 million monthly readers through career and life transitions with empathy and vital information. Lauren was raised in Ohio, Texas, and Georgia, and she now lives in the great city of New York with her husband and two young sons and a puppy. (laughs) Yes, Lauren, puppy? Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Well, I don't know. She's still puppy. She's 18 months. She's a toddler. She's a toddler. Perpetual puppy. Hi. I'm so glad you called me your colleague. That makes me so happy. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think of you that way too. Well, Kelly and I are thrilled to welcome you to the podcast. Why don't we start off by having you tell us what is the fifth trimester? And lately you're saying we're all in it right now. So we don't have to have a baby to be in a fifth trimester. So, So tell us about what's going on. Definitely not. So the fifth trimester is a term I came up with, actually the real launch from when I left my magazine career into doing this whole new kind of career was when I trademarked the term. So it's the transition back to work after baby is what it was initially. And that was the topic of my book in which I interviewed and surveyed almost 800 working moms with all different definitions of motherhood, all different definitions of career. The first three trimesters are pregnancy. The fourth is the newborn phase, which I only learned when I was in it with my first son is sort of this idea that you recreate the feeling of the womb to comfort a baby because babies aren't really meant to wake up to the world until about 12 weeks. And in America, as has been sort of wrongly normalized, 12 weeks is when many of us go back to work if we aren't there already. Fast forward through book release, turning it into a whole business. I do a lot of work with organizations and businesses now helping them retain new moms. And then the pandemic hits. And as you and I have talked about, Every single one of my speaking engagements, because they were all like live on stage, gets canceled. My whole 2020 of income just like, boom, on the floor, dead. And I licked my wounds for a few weeks and my husband got sick. He's a doctor. He works at a hospital. He was gone all day long. I became like the domestic, you know, everything of my home, which was not what I had intended. And then really quickly, I realized as I was having to be very transparent about my work life with my kids and about my kids with the clients who remained 
and felt really vulnerable and had to negotiate things in a whole new way, both sort of externally and internally with myself and kind of redefine who I was as a working parent, I realized, oh my God, I'm back in my fifth trimester again, just like so many other new moms. Only I looked around me and every other person who was caring for somebody, every other mom, every other dad, every other person with elder care responsibilities, suddenly it was like we were all in our fifth trimesters. And that was a real thank goodness, eureka moment for me with my business, but it also let me really expand the reach to help everybody with a personal life who works now figure out how do we get through this in a way that actually can maybe yield some progress. And how do you know you're in the fifth trimester? What are three telltale signs that you're You're in right now? (laughs) You're tired. You're overwhelmed. You know, I kind of knew this when I was writing the book and interviewing all these brand new moms who were explaining to me and those who had even maybe gone through it like a few months prior or a couple of years prior, that getting through that transition had set them up for so many other uncomfortable transitions of career and family. And so I think you know you're in a trimester, which we measure our lives in seasons, right? It's a very natural sort of way to think of a chunk of time. And it makes a lot of sense that you sort of reflect on the progress that you've made in these three-month chunks. But you know you're in it if you're tired, if you're uncomfortable, if you're having to be at least 10% more vulnerable and sort of open and honest about either your personal life in your work life or your work life in your personal life. And that integration just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You may be an expert. You have to be more honest. It's like, well, I think two things. One, it's sort of like if you have food in your teeth and everyone can see it, it's like suddenly you have to be honest about the fact that like things that you used to be able to hide, suddenly it's out for everyone to see. Yeah. I also think that I remember when I became a parent, I just felt like my life in many ways had come apart and I had to put it back together in a different way. And I do feel like that is what you feel brand new. You feel what? You feel like it's your first day as an intern at age 18, even though you may be, if you're a parent who's going back to work, you may be somebody who's great at like all the mom things, but you know, not really know how to do the job. If you have done a job for a long time and you've gotten to a place where you you feel comfortable with it, but then you're coming back suddenly like as a mother in that job for the first time, it's just an enormous sea change and you don't feel as confident in your ability. And it's your first day on the job as a working parent. And I think that's what a lot of us are feeling right now as we imagine what our working lives are going to look like through this chaos of pandemic, but also on the other side of it, if there is really like a moment when we kind of feel like we're done here. Mm -hmm. Kelly, you want to ask Lauren one of our questions? Hi. So Lauren, I'm hearing themes of vulnerability and it's the fifth trimester. It sounds like it's very much about showing up or feeling like you're showing up to an environment for the very first time, even if you've been there at some point before. So There are so many parents right now that feel like they're failing at work and at home. And although this is clearly a failure of the system, not providing adequate family leave and childcare, folks tend to blame themselves as individuals. So why do you think parents are doing that? And what should they do instead? You put it so perfectly. It's exactly what's happening. There's a lot of internalization of guilt of, wow, for parents who are partnered to think like, gosh, specifically thinking of a heterosexual couple in which mom has decided to maybe work less in her paid work to take care of the kids. And she entered into this partnership as maybe did her husband, you know, thinking they were like quite a progressive couple, but now look where they are. And they've kind of set up this new 1950s dynamic. And it's really, really easy. First of all, to build some bad habits pretty quickly, but also to blame yourself and think like, oh, 
is this who I actually was all along? Did I have sort of this deep misunderstood (laughs) desire to be like really traditional and maybe like be more mom focused than work focused? And it's so important to remember that, first of all, don't blame yourself. Every family is making the very best decisions they can to take care of themselves, to be able to continue earning, supporting, loving their children in whatever way is going to work it's just really important to talk about it and to understand the external factors that are causing that. So in that couple that I described to you, for instance, if dad is better paid for the work that he does than mom is paid for the work that she does, which is probably pretty likely given the existing gender wage gap and all of the studies and research on the motherhood penalty versus the daddy bonus, and I can talk more about that if you want me to define it a little bit, then it's only natural that you're going to have protected the income of the higher earner for this period. But it's really important also to measure our unpaid work and to use that as we really try to calibrate looking forward. What does our new balance look like as a family? Lauren, what is the daddy bonus and how can I get one? I know, right? Well, here's the bummer of news. So, okay, the motherhood penalty is the measured negative impact of each child on a mother's earnings and her status in the workplace. They control in these studies for people who have worked gone part-time, let's say, or even for the time that you spent on a parental leave and even controlled for all that, there's still a decline of 4% per child. That's the most conservative study showed that. The daddy bonus is the exact opposite. Dad's earnings go up with every child they have just because of social bias that we think that he has to provide for his family. But, and this is the big but, if a dad is more transparent about his fatherhood with his colleagues, he does not enjoy the daddy bonus. It's just like if they know he's got one at home, you know, not if he actually... Uh, I would like to discuss this with the management. Yeah, (laughs) that's, you know what? We all would. That's where we are right now. That's a problem. So speaking of problems, as a parent myself, I think a lot about everybody's mental health. And I got to tell you, you know, we're almost at one year, the time that we're recording this of being at home. And I feel like as the months drag on, it gets harder to reassure myself that it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. We're going to bounce back. So I'm wondering as we get a little bit more tired, what do you recommend we do to talk ourselves through this? What are some of your mental health strategies that you recommend parents adopt to to help manage themselves and their hearts and their souls during this time? So, so, so many. First of all, I'm looking out my window right now at trees that have had snow on them and weather that like makes my fingers so that I can't feel them when I go for a walk for months now. And let us not forget that February is seasonal affective disorder season, at least in my house. So you have to really remember that this is a time of year when we are maybe a little more withdrawn anyway. And I think that we are all feeling so many effects of loneliness, of self-isolation because we needed to, but it's not just that we're not with our extended families to the degree that we want to be or with our close friends to the degree we want to be. For me, it's also like, there's this awesome lady who used to make my coffee and I used to say hi to her every day and it made me happy. And I don't think I even really noticed before that it made me happy. So... It feels a little artificial sometimes, but I think we're getting used to it. But you have to recreate some of those contact points. Who are the people you work with who would be your, I call them your candy jar people or your water cooler people, although 
heaven knows if we'll ever use water coolers ever again, right? It just sounds like a, like a germy disaster. But who are the people who you don't work with necessarily directly, but if you were in an office space together, you would know them. You would know what's going on in their lives. You would know what work they're thinking of taking on and they would know what you're taking on. And so for both business development, but also more importantly, just our feeling of camaraderie and being part of a team, you can deliberately, this is totally crazy, pick up the phone and call any of those people. And you can just say, I heard on this podcast, this lady said, like, you should get in touch with your candy jar people. Like, I want you to know you're my candy jar person. And if we were together right now, I would totally know how you're doing. And we can, can we catch up for five minutes? That's all, that's all you really need. And those little contact points make a big difference. So that's one thing. Next, there have been studies that show that companies and organizations are investing really, really readily in their mental health benefits right now. That doesn't mean, though, that employees necessarily know they exist. And I think a lot of people assume that you really only should use them. Call that 800 number if you're having a crisis. But the truth is they're meant to be preventative. And I can't think of a single person I know right now who couldn't benefit from having someone comfort them, support them, be their sounding board. So if you have access to any kind of mental health benefit, use it. And then in terms of just redefining what self-care is, this is one of these really ironic areas where we have raised the bar and expectations of ourselves to the point where it's actually almost unhealthy to like take care of yourself to the degree that society tells you you should. But self-care is no longer you lying on some puffy massage table with essential oils and special music playing. That sounds awesome, maybe for you. If you can have that right now, like bless, that sounds great. But we need to know that even in these small moments when we might be taking care of someone else, if you're calling your friend because you know she needs you, that is in some ways also an act of self-care because we feel good taking other care of other people. If you are bathing your child, but actually bathing your child is one of your favorite moments of the day because you giggle and do that thing where you make their hair go up with the soap, pause and remember that when you were envisioning parenthood, that was one of the things you looked forward to and actually embrace it as such and count it. It all needs to count as self-care, these little, little moments. And if you can, if you can, if you can get outside, take a walk. I tend to call a friend on a walk or listen to a podcast because then I feel this double dose of like, whoa, I just did two good things for myself. Even if it's only 15 minutes, I have to do it every day. I'm really hearing you that connection is critical. And I have to say for myself that I have a tendency when I'm feeling isolated not to reach out. Like my tendency is to be like, you know what, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm not going to call someone to join me. This actually happened to me yesterday. And I just sort of said, well, I just want to be on my own anyway. And I feel like isolation begets more isolation. Interestingly enough, I ran into a friend that I usually walk with where I was walking. And I was so grateful that she just appeared and that I didn't have to call her. And it reminded me that even when you feel like, oh, what's the point? like forget it. And maybe I've even forgotten how to socialize anyway. There's also that piece of like my hangout muscle is so atrophied right now. It's really important, I think, to push ourselves and to remind ourselves that we are human beings who actually need and thrive on connection. So I think that's really, really helpful. Um, I think Kelly has a question for you. Yeah. And Rachel, I love the point you just made that isolation begets isolation because I feel the same way sometimes. The longer I don't reach out, the more I don't want to reach out. But it's one of those things that we have to consciously rip ourselves um, 
out of. And then you're right. It feels so much better, but otherwise the pressure just kind of mounts and then it becomes more of a chore than anything. But Lauren, I did want to circle back to, you made an excellent point earlier where you said how through this pandemic, people's values in a way have been turned upside down, whereas women or the household thought they were going in such a progressive direction only to realize that the roles are pretty traditional. So we know that women have disproportionately taken on domestic and caregiving work. What can families do to make this more equitable? The number one thing I tell people is to make it visible. And I do think that actually when you look at what the lingering perhaps positive effects of the pandemic are going to be, nobody can ever say anymore that the invisible labor is truly invisible. It has become pretty visible to our colleagues and our workplaces and certainly in dual earning families where there's two adults bringing in income. It's become pretty clear the inequities, the fact that somebody had to remember that. So like recurring joke in my family is that my school has a rule or our boys school tells you everything that I call it my school, right? Our boys' school has a rule that you can only wear shorts if the low temperature of the day is 65 or above. I'm definitely the only parent who knows that. I think my boys don't even know that. And so, you know, not that they're going to school, not that they're wearing shorts right now anyway, but it's a good example of things that would get discussed and somebody would have to figure out, are there enough shorts clean that has come up in a way that's much more visible to both partners in my marriage. The way to make things really visible and actually to avoid the resentment of keeping that ever growing list in your mind, which by the way, probably has some things on it that are not necessary, is to actually have them visible to everybody. Now my boys are older. My boys are nine and 12. So they can read, which is really beneficial. They can fold laundry when I ask them to, rarely when it just like occurs to them, but I ask them. And so we have a whiteboard on our refrigerator, which seems to be sort of like the central hub of our apartment. And it has the whole week schedule. Each boy gets a different color circled of like, here's this tutor for you. Here's that doctor's appointment for you. Here's the piano lesson. So nobody can be surprised. Then at the bottom, you know, we write down like, and this is far beyond a level of organization than is natural for me, but I've had to embrace it. What meals we're having this week so that nobody can be surprised and say, I don't like that. If we notice we've run out of something, whoever notices writes it down. And so the board has everybody's handwriting on it, not just mine, but then the next person to order groceries is going to order what's on that list. So it has to be visible. And then we have to also, I think, really have a bit of a reckoning with ourselves that some of us make our home lives more ambitious than they have to be, but because we want them to be. I didn't make Valentine's this year with my boys. It's the first time ever. I usually get pretty into that. And I would not be honest if I were complaining about doing that because I totally bring that on myself. I could go to the drugstore and buy the like Garfield pre-made ones, but no, I want my boys to be like super inclusive and to do something that comes from the heart. And so to the degree that I take that on and my husband does not take that on, I can't really blame him for that because I need to own that that's something that I I like doing and was part of like that bath time with the silly hair, like part of the fantasy I had of parenthood. Does that help? Does that answer? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I do love what you said about make it visible because otherwise, if you don't really point those things out and bring them to the surface, then as you mentioned, it will build a sort of resentment in a way. And just as I'm listening to you, I can't help but think of the women out there or the men or just folks who don't have a partner, you know, and 
they fit into all of this. Do you have any tips for just parents in general to be more productive, especially when their kids are literally right on the other side of the door? <laughs> Um, or even yes. in the room with them. Um, I don't have kids myself, but I have some amazing friends that are parents and the stories that they share with me while they're at work, they're teachers and, you know, their kids are yeah. right by their sides. and They can't escape them in a way. So what would you tell those folks? First of all, I hope we have an appreciation for teachers and I hope that we pay them what they deserve to be paid from now on. I hope that that is one shift that really is for the better. I actually specifically do want to talk about unpartnered parents, single parents, whether that was by choice or through divorce or the loss of a partner. In my first book, they are weirdly, I thought weirdly, but not really, overrepresented. There is an overrepresentation among the moms who I interviewed and dads and partners of single parents and also of parents of kids with special needs. And I really tried to think about why that was. And it was really that they were the ones who raised their hands and who said, and they're people who have the least amount of time to give, but said, I really want you to interview me because I have concrete advice to offer. And so there is concrete advice about sort of how to organize your day and be hyper-efficient about everything and let go of any guilt. But that last part was really the most significant thing I heard universally from these single parents is that they did not have any of the kinds of feelings that many of the other moms I talked to who said like, oh, I just feel like I need to be everything to everyone. I never have time to take care of myself. Every uncoupled mom I talked to specifically had advice about how she was comfortable going to other people and asking for support because she knew that if she did that, she would be better able to care for her child. There was no self-judgment about it. This was really simple things. Like I know that I need my best friend, and this is hard in the pandemic, but I need my best friend to come over for three hours on a Saturday so that I can go run the errands that I need to run. And there was no conflict about those feelings. So my advice to coupled parents is, have that degree of comfort asking for help because my goodness, can we all understand and agree that when you ask for help for yourself as a working parent, it's because you're trying to take good care of your kid, that that's the best way to do it. So as for the parents who are single right now and trying to work and do this, I have a number of my coaching clients, all of these women I'm thinking of are lawyers and it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of nights that they aren't sleeping. You can't function fully and not sleep at all consistently for more than a night or so in a row. And so to the degree that they have been able to find some form of childcare during this, they've really had to. They were the first ones among the women who I've worked with who said like, okay, I'm going to do the backup daycare. I'm going to figure out how a relative can come and help me because they just had to in order to maintain their careers. For their colleagues, and this is the advice that I offer in the webinars I give, look around you. If you think you're going through a hard time, look around you. And if you have anyone on your team or the team around your team who is a single parent, offer them something, whether that is something to relieve them of time or if they have too much work that they're doing because they cannot work at 100% right now continuously for a year. It's just not going to work. Offer them something to share in the burden of it and you will build a collegiality that makes everyone want to stay at your employer for a long time. It's only a good thing. Wow. Yeah, those are some really, really great tips, Lauren. Thank you for putting that in that way and kind of covering both sides of the fence and really emphasizing the importance of being strategic or asking for help, whether you are coupled or uncoupled, because it works, you know? So thanks. So I want to take the other side of the coin here because, Lauren, I'm sure you've heard that some people who don't have children have 
felt a little bit resentful of the attention that's been given or the special sensitivities that have been afforded to people who have kids Mm -hmm. and have said either loudly or maybe more kind of muttering on Slack in a direct message, I don't want to have to absorb the burden of all this work from parents who understandably, but still in a difficult way for me, can't manage their workload that they handled prior to the pandemic. So how real is that resentment? And what, if anything, can parents do if they start to pick up on it? So it is real and it's really important that when companies and organizations create policies specifically to deal with COVID times or ongoing, how to support our employees, that they are the most inclusive of every kind of caregiving you could think of. So that means that, you know, you don't just have an ERG, an employee resource group that's just for moms, right? No, it needs to be for caregivers. It should be for moms and dads and people with elder care obligations or have all of those too. And when you create policies to support those people, you make them open to anyone who has a caregiving need. And something I actually learned embarrassingly late is that FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is the only version of federal maternity leave that we have in this country. It's job protected leave for you to take care of a family member or yourself for 12 weeks without pay. It's terrible. It's not good enough. However, what I found out recently is that only 25% of people who use FMLA are using it to take care of a child. And I think we all assume, oh, it's for maternity leave, paternity leave. No, 25% are using it to care for a partner or spouse. And 50% of people who take FMLA are using it to take care of themselves. So when you look around at your colleagues who may not have kids or who may not even have an older generation above them that needs care, remember that actually taking care of yourself needs to count too. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to take the boss up on the offer of flexibility of time or whatever it is that's being offered that the parents need, but also everybody else could use. But to the degree that you can use that stuff, even if you aren't a parent, go ahead and use it, destigmatize it, make it not just for moms, not just for parents, but really for every single person you work with who has a personal life, which is really every single one of us. So Lauren, why is supporting parents good for business? Oh my gosh, I love that question. Why is supporting good parents good for business? Supporting parents is good for business because, well, so there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to be a little bit binary about it. So when you support women to be able to stay with their careers, they end up earning you more money. There's been studies that show the United States GDP would increase if we had parity of more women in leadership and 50% of our executive boards were women. Your stock value of your company, if it's public, has been shown to be higher if you have more women on your board, more women in leadership. Women are actually just when you get down to like the nickels and dimes of it are actually incredibly valuable in spite of being undervalued. Imagine if we felt valued, how valuable we would be. So when we support women to be able to stick with their careers, we are actually making our companies more profitable. And I used to tell people all the time, oh, hire me because it's the right thing to do to support your parents. Now I say, hire me because it's the right thing. And also I'm going to ultimately save you a lot of money because losing people costs a lot of money and losing women specifically costs a lot of money that you would have later if you kept them. So that's the women's case. The men's case is interesting as well because, okay, so we know that there was a study that showed that for every month of paternity leave that a dad was able to have, 
the mom in that family made 7% more income. I think it was measured like four or five years later, which is fascinating because she didn't make 7% of her income in that one month. What she did is the dad was able to take care of the kid. She was able to do her job. Dad was able to learn all the things that moms very often in our culture spend more time learning because they're more comfortable taking more time during maternity leave than paternity leave. And it shakes out that way. The other thing about dads is that I'm going to want to get this number right. I think it was, I saw that 57% of dads say that being a father is absolutely imperative and integral to their identity. So imagine that 57% of dads going to work and having to hide the fact that they're a dad. Are they going to feel as invested in their work? Are they going to do work that shows the depth of how much they care and of their creativity and that lights them up and has them thinking big thoughts? No, probably not. So like let them be okay being dads in the workplace and you're going to get their best ideas, their whole selves. As parents, all we want to do is make sure that the work that we does makes a better world for our kids one day. So clearly we're all invested in our parenthood at work. That makes so much sense. And it sounds like when you were describing the benefit of women in particular, that it's almost like a long-term investment in a way the company will ultimately get a larger return on the investment if they would only put the time and effort forth at the appropriate time. Exactly. Um, That's exactly it. Okay. So with that in mind, are there any benefits to the changes parents are dealing with right now? Is there anything about this experience that might be good for us or that we might want to keep even after the pandemic is over? What can we learn from this? What's happening? Oh, there's so much to be learned. I don't want to shove aside the idea that this hasn't been like terrible. It has been terrible. It has shown so many cracks of bias and unfairness and disparity and who has access to good health care and who is doing the kinds of jobs that are going to be most impacted by COVID. It's been terrible. However, I do think, like I said, that some of that invisible labor in the home is becoming more visible. Also, if we ever needed a case study to see if flexibility works, I think we have seen for many kinds of jobs, not all kinds of jobs, but many, many, many more kinds of jobs than we knew before, that you can work alternate hours. You can work from different locations. You can really measure your success in, and I hate this is such a like the office kind of word, but in deliverables instead of in minutes and time and FaceTime. And I think that we should keep that. I also think that there is a transparency and a casualness that I hope will stick around. I don't just mean that like I'm doing this interview wearing fleece, you know, which is awesome. It's much more comfortable than wearing a black sheath dress, but that there is a comfort with being vulnerable, you know, with telling you I lost my train of thought earlier, that kind of thing that I hope will stick around because I do think that it will foster the most creative solutions and the most progressive solutions for the work that we do. Lauren, thank you so much. This has been really, really helpful to me as a parent, as a professional, and I feel like there was something for everyone listening to you talk. There were strategies. There's a lot of authenticity and vulnerability, and I think at the very least, you made others feel not alone, and at the most, you gave some people some really great ideas, whether they are policymakers in their organization or looking for what to do with that whiteboard, which I was paying close attention to. So Lauren Smith Brody, the author of The Fifth Trimester, a really terrific book, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Baby. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. Thanks, Lauren.
speak up. Looking Up, a Unity podcast, has been brought to you by PayPal, developed in partnership with Rachel Simmons, and produced by Wheelhouse Media. A special thank you to Jocelyn for use of her incredible song, Speak Up.